This isn't breaking news this morning, but we no doubt live in a very broken world, a world full with broken lives, broken marriages, broken families. We see the effects of sin every day. So the question is, is, is what's the answer? What's the answer to a broken world, to broken lives, broken marriages, and broken families? And God has not left us guessing this morning, and we thank Him, praise Him for that. And we see this morning, I believe, really what, what God's plan is for broken lives, broken people. We maybe don't like to admit that we are broken, and even though sometimes we may admit we are, we maybe don't want to admit that we're maybe a little less broken than the person next to us, but in reality, we all are broken because of sin. And so this morning, I think we see in this text the beauty of God's plan to take broken lives and to make them whole, to give them forgiveness, to grant them peace freely by and through Jesus. And before this episode that George just read, I want us to look at what precedes this and to answer the question, what what is God's plan for brokenness in our world? I pray, number one, this morning that if you're here today and you've never come face to face with the reality of your sin and your brokenness, and allow Jesus to enter in and forgive you and to change you, that today maybe you would surrender to Him. Maybe here today, and maybe you've got a, in a place in your spiritual life where you're maybe a little dry. We all get there, right? Where we maybe get a little rigid. We lean maybe a little bit more toward religion than we do this grace-filled Spirit-filled living. And maybe our joy is not there. Maybe we're asking, Lord, restore the joy of my salvation, that I would passionately love you in light of the forgiveness that you have shown me. But wherever you're at this morning, I pray that you realize that God does have a plan for the brokenness in this world, and he lays it out, I think, beautifully in this text this morning as he gives us a picture of his forgiveness, his love, and his grace that he extends. So if you would, look with me at verse 18 in the very same chapter that George read for us this morning. I want us to answer a few questions this morning leading up to the episode that we just read. Jesus has been healing. We've seen that. Last week as David preached, he healed the centurion's centurion's slave. He raised the son uh, to life of this widow. And here in verse 18, we, we pick up a section where John the Baptist, his disciples, um, have been watching on, have been listening and seeing what Jesus has been doing, and they're going to enter into the scene. And so as we pick this up this morning, I, I want us to first answer some questions as we see God's plan. First of all, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And that's where we begin today. And look at verse 18. It says, The disciples of John reported to him about all these things 
Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for somebody else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? I want us to stop there. What, what's happening? Okay? Uh, the disciples of John the Baptist, uh, they have been sharing with John, and John sends them out to certain ones to go to Jesus and ask the question, are you the expected one? Now the question is, is, is John struggling? Is he doubting? Is, is this more for John or is this more for the disciples of John? And we really don't know for certain. I think John, here he is, probably in prison, probably is wanting to know, hey, listen, um, is, is Jesus really the Messiah? And just maybe have some assurance, reaffirming and is expecting to, to hear in return, hopefully, what Jesus is doing lines up with what Scripture says that the Messiah came to do. This also could be simply for his disciples as well, to grow and to learn more about the Messiah and about Jesus. But whatever the case is, he sends his disciples to Jesus, and they ask this question, are you the expected one? Are you the Messiah? I'm going to pause there for a second. You think about in our world, we are all asking this question, one way or another, are you the expected one? Are you the one that we're waiting for? Whether we know it or not, we're all asking that question. We're all looking for something to come to save us. We're looking for something to relieve us, to rescue us, to help us, to define us, to give purpose to our life. We're all looking for something to do that. And so this question, I think, is big because that's what the Messiah has come to do. He's come to do all of that. And so Jesus is asked about here, are you the expected one? John sends out his disciples and look at the response of Jesus. He doesn't listen first with words. As Luke tells us in verse 21, at that very time, he cured many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And so he shows with his actions, actions that speak of something great, that yes, he is the expected one. Yes, he is the Messiah. He is the one who has the Spirit of God upon him, as Luke 4 tells us, and he has come to do these things. And so Jesus then answers in verse 22, he says, go and report back to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And so he tells John, yes, I am. I am the expected one. I am the Messiah. As he refers back to Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, that speaks of the Messiah, Jesus says, I am he. And then in verse 23, he says, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Meaning this, that the favor of God is upon those who accept Jesus as the Messiah. Joy, fullness of life, is granted to those who accept Jesus as the Messiah. And so Jesus continues. He doesn't just answer who he is, but he does something interesting here. To continue along the same lines of declaring that, yes, he is the Messiah, he will look to now John and to say, 
I want to tell you a little bit about John. Look what happens in verse 24. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John the Baptist. And he asked the crowds this. And so you had onlookers. You had people that were being healed. And so as these disciples had come and asked this question, you have a crowd around Jesus, which was very common. And so Jesus turns to this crowd and listen to what he says. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? And so he's referring back to John. He says, a reed shaken by the wind, but what did you go out to see? So what's a reed shaken by the wind? What does that mean? When you went out to hear John, when you went out to hear him speak, did you go out to hear this spineless man with no backbone? Did you go out to hear this man that was uh, willing to be swayed here and there by what the crowd wanted him to say? And Jesus is saying, no. That's not what you went out and heard. Maybe you were wanting to hear that and him to be that, but that's not who John was. And then look at verse 25. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Those who are spindly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. And so what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see this, this man that had this popular uh, following? Uh, this man that lived in luxury, but no, what you found is you found a man that was selfless, a man that was unselfish, a man that was self-denying. That's who John was. And then look at verse 26, but what did you go out to see, a prophet? And Jesus says, yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. You see, what was John? John was truly a servant of the heavenly king. And he was more than a prophet in the sense that, that he came literally to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus says next in verse 27. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And Jesus says, John is that one that Malachi spoke about. John had a greater role than any other prophet as the one who would come declare that, yes, here is the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, that's who I am. And then look at verse 28. I say to you, as he speaks to the crowd, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. He's saying that the least in the kingdom of God surpasses John in privilege. I want us to remember this verse. Remember the episode that John just read? We're going to get to it in just a second. The least in the kingdom of God is of greater privilege than John the Baptist. That's a huge statement. A huge statement. You see, John is the end of one age and beginning of this new era. And those that come after John literally stand upon John's shoulders. And so John is this mountain peak between the old and the new. And so John anticipated the kingdom of God, but guess what? We get to participate in it. And Jesus is saying, that's the beauty of God's plan. John came, he had a role. The beauty is the least of the kingdom of God is even greater than him because they get to participate and experience the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, this is who I am, this is who John is. And he came speaking 
of me as the Messiah. But then look at verse 29 and 30. He's going to turn to the crowd now, Luke is, and there's a great division in the crowd. When it comes to God's plan and Jesus working in John to point to him, listen to what Luke tells us. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So you have this deep division in the crowd that day. The first group had responded positively to the words of John before. Uh, as he was out in the wilderness, they would have been baptized uh, there at the Jordan River. And so they responded positively to John. Now they responded positively to Jesus as the Messiah. And so Luke says they have acknowledged God's justice, meaning they've justified God, meaning they've accepted God's plan in sending Jesus as the Messiah, and they believe it to be true. And so you've got this one group where you may call them the common people or sinners or tax collectors as they were viewed back then. But here you have this religious crew in verse 30. What did they do? They reject God's plan. They reject God's purpose in Jesus. Not submitting to John's message and baptism and not sitting, uh, submitting to Jesus' words and to who he was. They would not accept him as the Messiah, as God's plan for salvation. And so Jesus is going to take the opportunity to respond to the thinking and the worldview and the belief that day by that second group. And listen to how he responds to this unbelieving generation in verse 31. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? What are they like? And so who is he, he referring to? The unbeliever, specifically to Jews as a whole, but even more specifically to the religious leaders, the Pharisees. The kingdom of God had been offered to them, and they had rejected it. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to use a parable to compare, to show what this generation is like. And to do that, he's going to tell a story uh, about kids and games they played. So this is very humbling. But look what he does in verse 32. He says that they are like children who sit in the marketplace. They call to one another and they say this. And so get the scene, okay? It's shopping day in the marketplace. Uh, Mom is gone. She's got the kids with them. Dad's over in the recliner just sitting, hanging out, doing probably not a whole lot of anything. But I don't know. Uh, just kidding. So, but Mom's shopping, and the kids are playing and hanging out. And they would role play back then. They would play games. So it's kind of like today. If your kids, especially younger kids, what will they do? They'll, they'll play kitchen. They'll uh, play different things around the house, whether it's with their dolls or whatever, but they'll role play with each other. Uh, sometimes I see that up here at the preschool during the week, especially with my five-year-old. I'll see her uh, role playing with her friends, and they'll play different things, different games. And so that's what they would do back here. And so Jesus wants that picture to be seen. And so here you have these children. They say, one, uh, they say to one another this in verse 32. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. Now, you might read that and be like, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, then, these people in the crowd would have fully known what this meant. And so, we played the flute for you. It's speaking of a wedding. Back then, a, a wedding was a very public scene. 
People would uh, parade through the streets, the wedding party, the bride and the groom would go through the town dancing and skipping, playing instruments, playing flutes. And so children would see this. It was a very common scene. And so it was a common game that uh, kids would role play and they would act out a wedding. But it says here, Jesus says, there are children that would not dance, meaning they would not join in the game. They wouldn't play. They sat on the side, maybe mimicking, maybe making fun of them, uh, maybe pouting and criticizing, say, I don't want to play that or whatever. And then he says they played not only wedding, but they played a funeral. All right? Now, you may think, if my kids acted out a funeral, we got issues. Right? But a funeral was, again, a very public thing back then. And we've seen maybe... News stories are before where they will carry the casket, a wooden casket through the street, and there's beating of chest and the crying out and, and mourning that's very visible, very, very um, public expression. And so, so kids would even act this out as well. And so they would sing a song, a dirge of, of mourning, and they would play this out. And so some kids would just sit on the side and say, hey, I don't, don't want to play that. And so what Jesus is is doing here is he's given this very humbling picture of this scene in the marketplace that was very well known. And basically what they're saying is, you unbelieving generation are like that. That you simply want to sit on the sidelines and criticize. But will not come and join in the kingdom of God. And here's he's, this is how, and then he furthers his point. He says that this is what you do instead. You're like kids, immature, criticizing. Verse 33, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. He's saying this this is what you're acting like. You you sit on the sidelines and you just criticize. You call him a madman, a, a demon, because he eats locusts and wild honey, right? Diet's a little odd, all right? He's ascetic, but he was a prophet of God. Not a madman, not a demon, but that's what they would sit on the sidelines and do. And then Jesus, the son of man, has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors, and sinners. And so here's John, who was not very socially uh, in with the scene, and here's Jesus. He's hanging out with sinners, drunkards, prostitutes, He's eating bread, he's drinking with them and hanging out with them, and they had a problem with that as well. And Jesus says, this is what you're like. You sit on the sidelines and you you criticize. And so Jesus says in verse 35, here's the conclusion, yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. The wisdom of God, God's plan, God's will, God's way is proven right, to be true through the life and the ministry of John, through the life and the ministry and the person of Jesus Christ. Wisdom is justified. The wisdom of God is set right by her works. But not only by the works of John and obviously by Jesus, but I think Luke wants to make a point here that the wisdom of God is seen to be right, is seen to be true, is justified by even the works and the actions of believers. 
It's the fruit. And so what Luke wants to do is he wants to show us the reality of that, the, the revelation of, of God's plan and what it looks like in a broken world, that those who believe in God's plan, that are not offended by it, but accept it and believe it, that this is what it looks like. It's this beautiful picture of broken lives changed and forgiven. And so Luke moves and he says, now one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to come dine with him. And so we just pick up the flow of Jesus' life here, and he gets an invitation to come to a dinner. And he entered the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And so here's Jesus now in this Pharisee's house. So he didn't just go eat with sinners and gluttonous and drunkards, but he even went and ate with the religious people, the self-righteous, the prideful ones. So he goes into this guy's home, and so you got this short little table, so you sit, lay on the floor, you're leaning on pillows, and you have a meal laid out, and everybody would have gotten their greeting at the door, uh, you would have had your courteous uh, welcome that would happen in most uh, hospitable situations. And so Jesus comes into this scene, it's a very probably long dinner, it's probably not rushed, And he's sitting there, and all of a sudden, look at verse 37, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. The word sinner literally means an immoral woman, okay? Probably an adulteress, maybe even a prostitute, but, but she was known in the city as one who lived immorally. And then it says, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Now, this perfume Um, would be one that was worth a lot, a year's wages, in fact. So a year's wages. So think about that. If you make 35 grand all the way up to whatever, 80 grand, 100 grand plus, that's what we're talking about, a year's worth of wages. She brings in and standing behind Jesus, verse 38, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Wow. So you've got this scene and it's just men hanging out, eating. And they have Jesus there for a purpose, probably not a very good purpose, And this woman walks in. So get this, this this very much ashamed woman, this woman, she knows, everybody knows. And she walks in, probably shaking, probably nervous. You know, you get that feeling in your gut when you're nervous. And she walks in, and she's feeling all that. And I imagine when she walks in, it just gets quiet. And she walks in, the first thing she does is she comes to the feet of Jesus. And she began to take her tears. Martin Luther calls it heart water. Literally tears and water from her heart that flow out. Because this woman recognizes her brokenness, her sinfulness. And she's in the presence of the Messiah, the King And she comes and takes the tears and wipes his feet because his feet need clean because they haven't been cleansed like everybody else's in the room. You see, he was snubbed of the hospitality that everyone else was granted except him. 
And she takes her hair down, which was very provocative to do in that day. She took it down. The Bible tells us, Paul says that a woman's hair is her glory. And she takes her hair and wipes his feet with her own tears. Not only that, she kisses his feet. Another big deal because everyone who walked in the room that day would have got a kiss on the cheek. But Jesus didn't. Again, snubbed the hospitality and the courteous gesture that everyone got except him. And so this woman kisses his feet and then takes the perfume and anoints his feet with this very costly perfume. The same perfume that she would probably wear while she was working to lure men. She takes that day and wipes Jesus' feet with. I don't know if there's a more beautiful picture of surrender in Scripture. Where we see someone who recognizes their brokenness and is there before the only one who can heal her broken life, who can change her, and who responds to being changed, we're going to find out in just a second, and healed, and who shows such costly love. See, she recognizes, unlike the others in the room, who this is, that yes, he is the Messiah, the one who can save, the one who rescues, the one who brings relief, the one who brings salvation, peace, and purpose. She recognizes that. And in verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him in and had been so disrespectful, when he saw this, he said to himself, not out loud, to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And so as he is thinking that and saying that to himself, what do we see out of him? We see pride. We see self-righteousness. We see that he is believing he is holy, super religious, while Jesus and this woman is unholy. And Simon doesn't even believe he's a sinner, while this woman knows full well she is. But what I love about this is in verse 40, Jesus answered him. (laughs) I mean, imagine the scene. This man didn't say it out loud. And yet Simon is doubting. If he's a prophet, he sure would have known. And I love when Jesus just speaks up and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. This isn't like, hey, can I speak, please? This is like, hey, you better listen up. I got a word, right? That's, that's really what it's like. And he says to Simon, a money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, which is a day's wages, and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? So another parable. I think we get it. It's real simple. One has greater debt. One has lesser debt, but they all have debt. They're all forgiven of this death, but which one will show love more love? And obviously, listen what Simon says. I suppose the one whom he forgave more. 
As he says that, I'm a matter probably pretty snobbery, uh, snobber, snobber, how would you say that? Snubbus? Stuck his nose up? I don't know. Anyway, hey, he just stuck his nose up. Let's just put it that way. I can't speak this morning. Snobberish? Is that a word? Is that a word? Snobbish? Whatever. All right. We'll keep snobbish out of my vocabulary from now on. Put that over here. All right. In a very snobbish way. I don't know why I had to have a British accent with that, but anyway, it came with it. He says to Jesus, you have judged, or he says to him, no doubt, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Jesus says back, you have judged correctly. I want to stop there for a second. So, so the scene is set. Here's this woman has shown this lavish, costly love, this beautiful act of worship to Jesus Simon, full of pride and self-righteousness. And look what Jesus does in verse 44. Turning toward the woman. But he says to Simon. So he's looking at the woman, but he's saying this to Simon. Do you see this woman? And I think this is huge because what, what he's saying right here is this is God's plan. This is the kingdom of God. Don't miss it. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, olive oil, which is very inexpensive. But she anointed my feet with perfume, which is very expensive. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he looked at the woman. He says, your sins have been forgiven. Now, when you see this and hear this, I I want you to know she's not forgiven because of her act of love. She's already been forgiven. Her act of love is in response to forgiveness. Now, I don't know what this woman's encounter with Jesus has been up to this point with his message or him face to face. But when she walks into this room broken over her sin and her life and the way she has lived, she comes and she shows this beautiful love toward Jesus because of being forgiven. She doesn't do this act of love to be forgiven. But she has been forgiven. Her sins are forgiven. Jesus pronounces that. Jesus declares that is her condition. And so those who are reclining at the table with him begin to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? Meaning, man, he heals, he raises the dead, but now he's declaring he forgives sin. Who is this man? And then in verse 50, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Not this woman's works, not her good deeds, any righteousness on her own. She 
It's not saved by that. It's she's saved by faith alone. You see, the distance between us and God is repentance. And this woman recognizes that Jesus, they're the only one that can save and change her life and grant her a new life. And she comes face to face with him. She recognizes her sin and brokenness, and she has changed. She's forgiven by nothing she has done on her own, by simply believing in who Jesus is. And he says, you're saved. Go in peace. You're now at peace with God. Forgiveness is freely offered. It's an unearned gift of grace. By faith alone, that is God's way. When accepted, what do we see? This salvation by faith immediately triggers something. It's this costly act of love. When we come face to face with the reality and the depth of the debt that we owe, that we couldn't pay, but we realize that Jesus has paid it in full, what's our response? Worship. And that's what we see with this lady. This expression of love and thanks for grace that she has received. Not an attempt to gain more, but the reality of what she has now. So I want to ask us this morning, do we still worship Jesus that way? With that passion, with that kind of feeling of, I don't care who's in the room. I don't care what those guys think and their judgmental attitudes. And they're criticizing on the side. But... I love my Savior. I love the Messiah. He has shown me great forgiveness. How can I not love him this way? God's way is right. It's the only way. There are two options. We've seen it in the text. We can either be offended by Jesus and not accept him, or we can believe There's no middle ground. This woman on this day was not offended one bit by Jesus. She accepted him and believed in him to be who he says he is. And she fell at his feet, took the role of a servant, and worshiped him as her king right there in front of the faces of all of these religious people and worshiped him. You see, this story is not just hers, but it can be ours. If you're here today and you've never come face to face with the reality of your brokenness and trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to know, just like this lady, you can know Christ. You can have Jesus say today, you are forgiven if you accept Jesus for who he is, as the Messiah, as your Savior, as your Lord. Simply by trusting in him, believing in him, and you, by faith, can be saved and have peace, just like this lady today. Church, I pray that we would never be like Simon. That we would never lean toward such a view and rigidness of such a man. But that instead, we would look at this lady 
and have this passionate, unabandoned love for our Savior. Let's pray.